0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Well, there are times when our good intentions need correction, there are times when our good intentions Need correction. Recently, I was at a band concert for elementary and middle school students, and in the audience were so many grandparents and parents and siblings, all wanting to be good audience members. But as it turns out, there's actually manners involved with a concert that tell you what you can and can't do, or, or when it is you should or shouldn't do something, even as simple as clapping. And what was so brilliant about this concert I got to listen to was that the director knew he needed to explain concert etiquette because otherwise nobody would know it. Or at least my people wouldn't know it. I suppose you're sitting there and you're probably one of these adults who knows how to train the kids in your life to have perfect concert etiquette. Probably your kids also have manners and after they watch YouTube for 15 minutes, they say, I think I've had enough. I've shrunk enough brain cells. I'm finished, mother and father or caring adult. But not me. For anybody that's a caveman like me and in a mere mortal, you probably have not been taught concert etiquette unless somebody explained it to you. This is when you clap. This is when it's okay to get up and go to the bathroom. This is when you talk. This is when you don't talk. And what was so cool is not only did the director explain, hey, if you're ever at a real concert like this um, in a real fancy place, this is the expectations for you. Uh, but they also printed on that little bulletin what the rules were because despite good intentions, there's time when you need correction. Now, of course, this can happen in lots of places. You might see a grandpa tell his grandson, hey, take your hat off if somebody's praying because that's one of our cultural Uh, ways of showing respect, or maybe an older gal is leaning over to a younger gal at a fancy meal and says, hey, this is the order to use all these utensils that are in front of you. Go outside in. Otherwise, who knows what those rules are? But this kind of clarification and and help happens in lots of different ways. And this morning, we're going to find Christ doing something quite similarly For us, for while many of us may show up today wanting to live faithful to God's word, many times our good intentions need correction. And not in some strong rebuke, everybody's in trouble sort of tone, but Christ is correcting for his people when good intentions can go outside of his guidance. Because frankly, many of us are more familiar with what our culture teaches us is appropriate than what Christ teaches is appropriate. And what we think is common sense may actually not be Christian. And in the 10 verses then that Josiah did such a good job of reading, we're gonna see three corrections that Christ offers, three ways that Christ is actually confronting our culture, and inviting us to live in a different way. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke chapter 17, 1 to 10? Maybe you have a device, we're in Luke 17, 1 to 10. Maybe you have a little handout, you can check out the text there. Uh, maybe you have a paper Bible, whatever it is. I, I Would you go to this scripture, because I want to show you from the text how we draw these conclusions. And as you make your way there, I was just struck in this Passage How the idea of church membership permeates the whole thing. And I know the words church membership actually aren't in our selected text, but in their day, the disciples would have so clearly understood, because they were so community minded, who was following Jesus as their rabbi and who was not, that in their day, they didn't need some sort of clarification. It was so clear. Of course, in our culture today, it's very hard to know who actually is a committed member of Mill Creek, which is why we at this church use that language. And I'm just struck by how that concept permeates this passage. But like I said, there are three corrections. Here's the first one. The first way we can get Christianity wrong. The first way Christ is correcting our good intentions is when we think our sin issues are nobody else's business. So that's the first way we get Christianity wrong. We think our sin issues are nobody else's business. Now, if you've got the scriptures in front of you right off the bat, you may be a little bit shocked by this concept. I know I was the first time I heard somebody say that unrepentant sin in church membership is not to be ignored, but in fact to be confronted. But I think the reason we can think that is very often, we are more taking our cues from culture than Christ, because Jesus is super clear. Look at verse one. Jesus begins with a warning that temptation will come for Christians. For those of you who've been around Christianity for a while, I trust you know this, temptation is a regular part of the Christian life. For those of you newer to Christianity, if you thought, oh, I'm gonna become a Christian so I don't ever have to struggle with temptations, I've got a very bad surprise for you today. (laughs) Temptation for Christians is normal and Christians will struggle with temptation the rest of their life. And that reality turns into a very scary observation from verse one to verse two, where we find out that if you are actually tempting others to sin... Why, if you are the kind of person inviting others or persuading others to sin, Jesus says you're better off with a millstone tied around your neck. Church, get this. If you forgot what a millstone is, think an eight foot stone, about a thousand pounds. And Jesus has said, you are better off having that thing roped around your neck and finding yourself at the bottom of the sea than the judgment you will face if you tempt others to sin. Verse three, then the heart of this passage, pay attention to yourself. Well, we could say, watch yourselves for if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, again, notice this isn't a biological brother. Jesus isn't saying merely if you have a biological brother, that's the one you got in front. No, this this is language where we derive membership from. For, of course, church, it is not our responsibility to confront every Christian that's in this city or in our nation or anyone who claims to be a Christian in our neighborhood. No, this would be for those who are members of Mill Creek in this specific example. If they are sinning without repenting, confront them. Meaning the expectation is we're actually involved in one another's lives. Now, like I said, this scripture isn't trying to give us a full doctrine of church, but I've noticed that even nowadays, even solid Christians can get lost on what a New Testament Christian is. So for anyone who's confused it, how is it you get the church membership from all of this? Just understand the way it works in the New Testament. The gospel gets preached and when people believe the gospel, they find themselves connected into a community of like-minded believers, meaning the gospel sets a people apart and that's what we're calling the church. And how do we know in this context if you're part of this church? Well, membership is the answer, of course. And the regular habit of the church in the New Testament that we carry on today, we gather every week on the Lord's day, Sunday, the day he was resurrected, and we assemble to read the word, preach the word, sing the word, pray the word, see the word in the ordinances. And for in the scripture then, we never find a brand new Christian practicing Lone Ranger Christianity. I know that can be popular in our culture, but the Bible knows zero, the Bible has zero examples of Lone Ranger Christians. So in this community then, Jesus is Followers, what Christ is correcting is this idea that unrepentant sin can be ignored by his followers. Instead, Jesus is saying those issues that are unrepentant really are everyone else's business. If you're a member of this church and another member of this church is guilty of unrepentant sin, Jesus is saying that's your business. And I know there's like an unwritten rule in a church like ours, and that unwritten rule is something like this. I'll make you a deal. Don't talk about my sin. I won't talk about yours. (laughs) You just keep your nose in your little business. I'll keep my nose in my little business and we'll all just be fine. But what Jesus is saying is that's not the way his followers are to operate. See, Christ knew sin would rear its ugly head in his community. It's not if, it's just when. And when that happens, and a person who did the sin doesn't repent, confrontation is needed. Humble confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. Verse four, then, when a Christian repents, which is what Christians are to do, then the person who was offended, the person who was sinned against is to forgive. Even if it happens seven different times in a day, which of course is a number for being holistic. It doesn't mean that you actually get to count the seven. And when your husband sins against you, wives, after number seven, it's like, you're out for the rest of the day. You're in the doghouse. No, we're never to stop forgiving each other. And for, Consider the alternative of Jesus's instructions here. Can you imagine a church that was the opposite of these four verses? What would it be like if our church was shocked when we were tempted or if a church allowed its members to tempt others into sin or didn't confront one another or didn't forgive one another? What kind of place would that be? Unfortunately, it would be very similar to many Churches that are around our city today that are taking their cues from culture and not from Christ. And that would be too bad. That would be the consequence of thinking our sin is nobody else's business. But here's then the truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Our sin really does impact our church. Our sin really does impact our church. If, if you're here, you're a baptized member of this church and you are going to have continual unrepentant sin. That sin will impact me just like my unrepentant sin is going to impact you. It will wreak havoc, havoc, And while our culture tells us, just ignore it, their sin's none of your business, Jesus's instructions is saying, hey, for my church, that is one another's business. And in case you're here, maybe you're a guest joining us for the first time because you want some of that wicked awesome lunch and it's coming and you have smelled it, it's fantastic. But maybe you're a guest and you're hearing me explain this and you go, I don't like that. I don't like this idea that my business is, my sin issues are, are the church's sin issues. Well, just wait till you hear what Jesus has to say about sex <laughs> or uh, gender or money. Um, Cause he's got, he's going to step on your toes a lot if this is getting it done. In fact, you can just check out last week's podcast if you want to hear Jesus' words on money. Here's application though, straight from the moves Jesus has made. There's four movements in these first four verses. So four applications here. Real quick, let's go through them. First application, understand temptations are sure to come. Again, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot that down. Understand temptations are sure to come. Don't be surprised, friend. Committing to Christ doesn't remove you from the fire of temptation. In fact, committing to Christ actually is going to turn the heat up. At least that's my experience. Like if you're here and you want to genuinely live for Christ, if you're the kind of person who prays, God, grow your kingdom through our church, through our family, in my neighborhood. If, if you're the kind of person who has a blessed friend, a person you're pretty sure doesn't know Jesus and you're praying that they would repent of their sin and come the saving knowledge of Christ. If you're the kind of person who's excited about church planting and you're gonna commit yourself to a church plant core team. If you're the kind of person who wants to continually live for Jesus, you are gonna have a bullseye on your back when it comes to temptation. Making those decisions is like kicking a spiritual hornet's nest. Temptations are sure to come. So if this afternoon you get flooded with temptations to sin and you're having a really hard time to trust Jesus, welcome, that's the expectation. They're sure to come. Application two then that follows, don't tempt others to sin. Don't tempt others to sin. Don't be the kind of Christian who looks around to see if you can help other people follow you in your particular sin of choice. We don't do that. Now, if it was 15 degrees cooler, I'd take five minutes to talk all the way through conscience issues because I think this is a place where we can unintentionally lead others to sin. But for now, I'll just point you to Romans 14 and save the little diatribe because conscience issues can be a place where we may take somebody else and ask them to violate their conscience, which we should never do. To the point at hand, Christians are never to tempt others to sin. Application three, straight from the text, rebuke your spiritual brother and sister, or we would say rebuke fellow members if they are unrepentant in their sin. Now, in my view, this is the most difficult application And to be clear, this doesn't mean we're all going to be deputized as the official Mill Creek Sin Police and we're going to stand outside and see if anybody does a rolling stop down here. Otherwise, they're going to get a little rebuke from pastor later. But it does mean that when sin rears its ugly head, and it will, and if a fellow church member is ignoring it or missing it or otherwise needs correction, we confront. Let's do this with that Matthew 7 principle in mind. I don't confront a splinter in your eye if I have a telephone pole in mine. First, get your telephone pole out. Then we can talk. But let's humbly confront unrepentant sin. For those who are members here, I trust this is familiar. You understand this commitment. We, we share this in our, where you, the paper you signed to become a member. For, for those here who are on the membership process... I want to make sure you know this is part of the expectation. We want to confront one another. Final application, forgive your spiritual brothers and sisters. Forgive spiritual brothers and sisters. This sounds easy enough, but it can be so difficult. The forgiveness Jesus is talking about here is, is a declaration. I give up my right to hurt you the way you hurt me. Easy to say, hard to do. It doesn't mean the relationship is automatically back to what it was. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences or pretending we aren't hurt, but we are laying down the sinful desire to hurt the other person the way we felt hurt. And I realize that in a church our size, it's a lot easier to just leave the church than have to have that conversation. But what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. My people are to forgive one another over and over and over again. These applications then bring correction to some of the message our culture tells us. For Mill Creek, we should not let our culture tell us how we do church here. Our church should actually shape our culture. Well, that's the first way that Christ is correcting some of our unintentional ways we do church. The second way we can get Christianity wrong, move with me to this second point, is when we think we need more faith to obey. Look at verses five and six, because that's what the disciples are thinking. They just heard Jesus drop all of this truth and they're thinking, oh no, you're gonna have to give us something extra to do what you just said, because what you just said, Jesus, is so difficult. Now, I trust the disciples didn't actually believe in pixie dust, but it's like, that's what they want. Give me some magic pixie dust, Jesus, because what you're asking me is very difficult. Give me more faith dust. That's what I require. Jesus corrects them, verse six. He says, you don't need more faith. You just need to live by faith. And that's why Jesus tells this story. He says, look, if you had the smallest amount of faith, which is what a mustard seed symbolized, kids, imagine a roly-poly all curled up in your hand. That's about the size of the seed. Imagine a little pebble that gets in your shoes that you dump out, that pebble, that size of faith is all you need. And you could tell a mulberry tree up, go to the ocean. That's what Jesus says. Now, to be clear, Jesus is using exaggeration or more technically hyperbole. He doesn't actually want us to have some like Harry Potter wand and tell a tree to move over there. I mean, if somebody has the power to move one of these trees and throw it in the ocean, I suppose I'd like to watch that later. If you could let my sermon finish first before you do that, kind of be distracting if you did that. Jesus' point though, nor is Luke's, to actually have us take literal trees and put them in the ocean. What he's saying though is you don't need more faith to actually do what I've commanded you to do. You just need to live by faith. And that's the truth I'd love for you to write down here. This is the second truth. It's the sec- second correction. We don't need more faith, church. We need to just live by faith. We don't need more faith. We need to live by faith. And the way the way Luke's using this word isn't as a, faith isn't a synonym for salvation, Uh, Faith is a synonym for trusting or belief. And and what that means is there are times when circumstances get very hard and our temptation is not to trust in the gospel, but to trust in my own powers or my own control or my own processes or, or my ways of getting things done. And what Jesus is saying is no, 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 no. To do my commands, which Jesus didn't say they're easy, but they are possible because of faith. Here then the application, look to Jesus, not yourself. Church, you got to look to Jesus and not yourself when it comes to obeying. Here's what that means. When you come to something in the scripture or even in this sermon and you think, how am I supposed to forgive this person who sins so awful against me? You don't have to conjure up extra magic fairy dust inside of you to get it done. You don't need more faith. You just need to live by faith. So if in your mind you're thinking, no, pastor, no, I actually can't obey the Lord and what he said because he hasn't given me what I need. Based on this text, I'm saying, you're actually believing a lie. You're trusting in a lie for Christ has given you everything you need to obey. And our problem isn't the size of the temptation. Our problem is we think it's too difficult because we've lost sight of Christ. Like Peter walking on the water, we take our eyes off Christ, we begin to look at our circumstances and we sink. Because look, friends, the same faith that brought you salvation initially is the faith that you are to practice continually. I want you to get this so bad. The faith that saved you initially is the same faith you are to walk by continually. It's track meet season and some of you are even going to state at track next, year, next week and we're excited for you and cheering you on. But imagine we're at a track meet. Imagine you're watching somebody run and they jump out of the blocks and they're using their feet. That would be like beginning your walk with Christ by faith. They're running with their feet. But imagine halfway through the race, they go, I'm moving to my hands, baby. I'm going to run with my hands at this point. You'd think, no, don't do that. You're going to lose the race if you try to run on your hands. But we do that in our spiritual lives. We jump out the gate with faith. And then we get into our middle of our life. We go, I guess I need something different. I guess I'll live by my disciplines or by my strategies No, live by faith. We start our life by faith. We are to continue living by faith. We end our lives by faith. This is how you cross the finish line, by faith. You don't need more of it, you have it. Very practically, it can be like this. If you're facing temptation... Like this afternoon, if you face temptation, whatever your little drug of choice is, we all have them, we have these fatal flaws. I don't know what your temptation will be, but this afternoon, pretend with me for a moment, you're facing it. Well, what do you do? This is how you live by faith through the gospel. You realize in yourself, you realize, this temptation that I'm looking at right now is no different than even Adam and the apple. It looks good, it promises to give me life, but it is a lie. Instead, I'm going to trust that in Jesus, I have everything I need and I have to put my faith in one or the other. And perhaps you've tried this temptation before, you've taken a bite of this apple and you realize it never comes through. It always disappoints. So by faith in the face of the temptation, you go, man, Jesus is better. I'm going to ignore this fruit that looks beautiful, makes my eyes feel good. I'm gonna put it away. I'm gonna trust my dad knows better best and I'm going to believe the gospel. That's how this gospel actually helps you through temptation. Or perhaps you're having a hard time with forgiving somebody and you go, yeah, I need more faith to actually forgive them. Here's how it works. When you look at the gospel and you see Jesus Christ, the perfect human taking the sins of you on his shoulders on the cross, extending to you mercy you didn't deserve, it changes you. And when you stare at that, you realize, I am receiving free mercy, not because of my deeds. And because he can freely forgive me, I am going to forgive others. That's how the gospel actually will change you. Do you see, church? The gospel of Jesus really has everything we need for life. It offers real boots on the ground application So we don't need more faith. Reject that lie. We need more faith to obey. Look to Jesus, not yourself. Second mistake corrected. Move with me to the third. A third way we get Christianity wrong is by thinking our obedience should result in extra blessing. This final story really cuts to the heart. And if this one sort of insults you, perhaps you're exactly the person Jesus had in mind when he shared this story. As Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, "If you have somebody working for you and they serve you dinner, when that person faithfully completes their responsibility, so to speak, do you throw them a ticker tape parade? You did what I asked. You work for me. Woo hoo!" Which means, by parallel, when a Christian obeys Christ's commands. When we're serious about our sin, when we're serious about repenting, when we're serious about confronting, when we're serious about not leading others into temptation, when we're serious about forgiving, when we're serious about obeying by the faith he's given us, we don't expect Jesus to throw us some Super Bowl parade. Hey man, I I had a really good week, pastor. I did everything I thought I was supposed to do. I'm trying to obey Jesus and Jesus is going, yeah, that was the expectation for this week. Now, one of the reasons this can feel so insulting is because in our culture, we're all led to think we're all so, so darn special. Everybody everybody in here, you're so, you're so special. Your parents told you all day, you can do anything you want to do. Wrong, you can't do everything you want to do. You won't make the NFL unless you're 6'8", 300 pounds. I don't care what your dad says, sorry. You're going to go to some graduation speeches and somebody's going to stand up and they're going to tell you a bunch of rainbow unicorn mumbo jumbo about how you can do anything you said you're not no not necessarily and part of the difficulty then is we just think oh my word i did exactly what you told me to do for seven minutes where's my parade and jesus is going no it's no parade that's baseline." Like if you came into my neighborhood pool sometime this summer and you just asked some random people, what's a good Christian do? Some of the things they'd say is probably like, not curse, be a good parent, be kind to people. And that's like our culture's baseline. And what Jesus is saying here is, "No, that ain't my baseline, here's my baseline. You're gonna confront others when they sin. <laughs> You're not gonna be giving into temptation. You're going to actually live by faith when the storms of life come. In three words, here's Jesus's point. Obedience is expected. That's what he's saying. Obedience is expected. Obedience isn't like the icing on the cake that you're like, man, I'm a really good Christian, so I think I'm really going to try hard to obey. Like, no, this is my expectation. Which means if you're here and you get huffy with God when something doesn't go your way? When when there's something that doesn't play out the way you were hoping, and in your brain you think, hey, I've been going to church. I've actually even been tithing. I've been helping out as a volunteer at the church. I made the food. Whatever it is, I sat out when that guy preached, droned on and on for 30 minutes in the blazing sun. God, how'd you let this happen to me? What I'm saying is that's evidence that you may not actually be believing this and that sounds a lot like the older brother from the prodigal son story in luke 15 doesn't it here's the application faithfully serve god for his sake faithfully serve god for his sake church we serve god not because of what we get from him but because of what he's done for us And seeing as the response of the unworthy servants in this story is plural, we realize we ought to be serving God together as a church community. And if we serve and we labor for the kingdom and things don't play out the way we were hoping, we're going to trust God. He really is sovereign and he's good. And we're not going to get mad at him or accuse him of holding out on us. For good grief, he sent his son to die on the cross for all of us, friends. Jesus paid the eternal punishment we deserved. There's no way he's holding out on us. Hear then the true gospel from scripture. Not the cultural false gospel, but true gospel, friends. If you're here and you don't know it, here it is. God is holy and good, and he designed a wonderful world for us to enjoy. But instead of honoring him, we have rejected him. In our hearts, we have followed the example of Adam and Eve and we have rebelled against God and said, I know better. And yet God in great mercy sent his son who lived perfectly, who did what Adam and Eve could never do, who did what Moses could never do, who did what Israel could never do, who did what you and I could never do. And if we would place our faith that Jesus really lived, he really died, he really was buried and he was resurrected. You can be saved from your sins. It's this gospel that corrects you and teaches you how to live. It's this gospel that brings us together. It's why we assemble here. We're not here because we cheer for the same teams. It's not here because we're all from the same neighborhood. It's not here because we're all ethnically identical. The reason we gather here is because we believe in Jesus Christ and that is what links this community together today. It's what will link this community together for life. So repent, friend, of any sin. And allow his gospel to correct you. Don't fall for the lie that your sin is nobody else's business. Don't fall for the lie that you need more faith to obey. Don't fall for the lie that obedience demands extra blessing. Instead, in these 10 verses, respond to Christ's corrections and live faithfully. That's what Christ wants for his people, his church. And that's the sermon in a sentence. Respond to Christ's corrections and live faithfully. Church, will you pray with me, please? God, thank you for the chance to walk through this scripture. Thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that you would take any part of this sermon you like and you would use it for the good of those who are Christians. For those who don't know you, Spirit, you're the only one that can save, and I pray you would regenerate. Do this for your glory, our good. And all God's people said, Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at MyMillCreek.com.